I'm uh, Bob Wise. I'm the GM for Kubernetes on AWS. And with me today on stage is a special treat, which is you're getting a couple of engineers from the Amazon.com team. So for those of you who may not be familiar with this, at AWS, we view Amazon.com as a customer, and we treat them as a customer. So even though we all work for Jeff, um, really what you're seeing here is uh, a vendor with one of his customers here to talk about um, uh, their experiences using EKS. So really my job here is to try to make sure you get the most out of um, what these guys are gonna talk about. And I wanna start that by talking about motivations for what you're gonna hear. So although a lot of the talk you're gonna hear and see is about kind of technical things, tooling, there's a fundamental business motivator for why it is that teams use these kinds of approaches. And this, these, these approaches have come from, at this point, decades of experience in our industry with good intentions, great teams, not actually leading to the business result that you want. And if you start with that, that great baseline, but then the process and the way the organization works is based on doing, trying to do a big thing and then trying to get that into production and then having problems and then realizing that, oh, well, what we need to do is we need to put some more checks. We need to add more people to the process. Then what happens is you slow down, and because you slow down, you now have to do more. So the lump of stuff you have to get done is now bigger, and that means there's even more stuff that has to be checked. And so you end up in this kind of downward cycle of um, going slower and slower. And so what has happened? People have realized that you have to take a diff completely different approach. And if you take a different approach, then you can get much, much better results. So the, the core of the better approach here is doing smaller things and using automation. So CI, CD are part of that approach. I would say CI has been something that most teams have figured out. But CD, continuous deployment, is really the key to going faster here. And so if you can get to this mode of doing small things, doing them with automation, and doing them with high confidence, then you can get results that look like this. So this is from the state of DevOps report that Puppet Labs puts out. They focus on different things. This is, a, by the way, all these reports are great. I would recommend them. Uh, this was one of the reports that they focused on this area of how do high-performance teams work when it comes to continuous deployment? And you can see these numbers are pretty amazing. Uh, and we see anecdotally our customers that adopt this kind of approach see these kinds of results. And so what you're going to see from the team that's going to follow me here in a moment is what that looks like, which makes it especially awesome. They're going to talk also a lot about microservices. Uh, I would say, as you're listening to their chat about microservices, bear in mind that microservices is a technical thing, and we're going to talk about some technical, technically uh, oriented things around microservices. But remember, it's an org pattern as well, maybe even more fundamentally an org pattern. 
But to try to help you understand and enjoy the following presentation, I did want to spend a couple of minutes talking about Kubernetes and pods and some basic concepts so that you have uh, uh, a baseline for understanding what's going on. So, okay, so Kubernetes. Kubernetes is a operations robot. In fact, the design of it is very, very much a robotics design. Uh, and so what you do is you have a bunch of hosts, you need to run a bunch of stuff, put those things in containers, and you tell the robot, hey, I, I think I need three of these running at all times. So we let Kubernetes, the way, we, the way we define that is with this thing called a replication set. We ask Kubernetes to please take care of this, and it will go and do it. And you, you don't actually tell it, put one on host one, one on host two, one on host three. It goes and figures that out based on a declarative state. Please go do this. Now, I do have a picture here showing a human being doing this, not recommended. This is by way of example. This should ordinarily be done through pipeline automation, which is another form of robot. So we have sets of robots all doing different things. But this is the result you would get if you went and played with uh, Kubernetes command line directly. Okay, so I've realized now I need more containers. I'm doing horizontal scaling. So I might say, please change that number to five. Please make sure there's five running for me. And Kubernetes will go and do that too. So it's providing a scheduling, a scheduling and placement uh, capability here. So this is where you get to that more kind of declarative approach and why this is not just a scheduling system, uh, but more of a complete lifecycle system for managing containers. So I've, I've asked the system, I've asked our robot here, please make sure there's five of these things running. And one of our, one of our hosts died. So Kubernetes says, oh, the state of the system is not what it should be. I have to fix it. And it will go and schedule those as best it can. So this helps quite a lot if you're um, automating operations in cases like this, you might not even have your pagers go off. This might be something you deal with the next day instead of in the middle of the night. That's just a flavor for what Kubernetes does. There's all kinds of other things you need to do with real applications, for example, uh, a human being changing the numbers from three to five based on load probably isn't what you want to do. You have metrics that feed into that. So you say, please make sure the load on the system always is at least X. You feed metrics in, the system itself uh, will update that. Uh, within um, Kubernetes, that system is called HPA. Also, you need to do things like route traffic. You need to manage the deployments. When I say manage deployments, this is pipeline concepts. I have to go from version one to version two and do that in some sane way. I also might have constraints around running multiple containers together on the same host for, let's say they have a shared memory queue. Um, so in Kubernetes, a pod is the concept used to encapsulate multiple containers that have to run together. They share an IP address. They share a security context. Uh, they can share uh, storage volumes. That's called a pod. You're going to see a lot about pods here coming up. You also don't want to have clients of that system worrying about how many IP, how many pods they're running at any time. Maybe there's three, maybe there's five, maybe, there, maybe there's 100. So you need to be able to do load balancing across those. So a service is the concept in Kubernetes used to do this. It has an IP address. It manages the IP 
uh, mapping of the service to the IP addresses in the pods, which may be shifting around underneath. And deployments are a really cool thing. So if you think about what you would want to do when you do a rolling deployment, you have three pods, they're all at version one, you want them to go to version two. You probably don't want to throw them all away and then deploy the new thing. You probably want a system that's going to do something snazzy like start to deploy version two while version one is still around, do load balancing across that set, make sure that the new thing that rolled out is actually working. If it's failing its health checks, you probably want to roll it back, which Kubernetes will do for you. Or if things are working pretty well, everything's passing its checks, you can start to roll those out automatically. And Kubernetes has a lot of knobs and dials to let you tune exactly what the policies are for this uh, kind of deployment. So that's just a quick snapshot of the kinds of things Kubernetes does. All of that robotics infrastructure running needs a bunch of stuff like shared cluster state. Kubernetes uses a system called etcd. You'll hear in the following session here a lot of talk about etcd. etcd is a distributed uh, raft-based consensus database, a bit complicated to manage. Um, Troubleshooting it can be tricky. This is part of what EKS does. So the EKS service is Kubernetes run in a distributed, highly available, highly available fashion with all kinds of monitoring and repair and the EKS team standing behind it. So we run upstream standard Kubernetes on your behalf, or in this case, on the behalf of the Amazon.com team. So production-grade, HA, highly secure. Uh, we run upstream, so it's uh, just like the Kubernetes you would run, run yourself, but we take care of that undifferentiated heavy lifting. Also, um, the EKS team uh, contributes to the Kubernetes project upstream, uh, and especially to a lot of the integrations between Kubernetes and the rest of AWS through uh, integrations with networking and storage and so forth. So we're, we're very committed to not just supporting EKS, but also supporting all the other ways you can run Kubernetes on AWS. Uh, more Kubernetes is run on AWS than anywhere else. A lot of Kubernetes running on AWS. The, um, there are a number of options to do that. Many of them do some flavor of build that uh, slide that I showed you uh, a minute ago building and installing etcd and the other control plane pieces and trying to manage those for you. But you're really on your own. If you have a problem with troubleshooting etcd, where do you go? You have to have those skills yourself. So there are a number of open source um, uh, software systems designed to provide that kind of tooling. Kubeadm, uh, Kubeadps. One of the more popular ones is a system called COPS. You're going to hear some discussion about COPS here as well. Many commercially supported partner options as well. And I would say you can also do some mixing and matching. Um, we have customers who use COPS, but then use the CNI drivers that the EKS team builds. So with that, I'll hand it off. Kevin? Yeah, thank you very much, Bob. Um, 
Thank you, everyone, for attending today. Uh, so my name is Kevin Delane, and I'm a senior software engineer for Amazon. And uh, Christian and I both work for the Amazon Shopping Foundations organization. And Shopping Foundations builds the uh, foundational software upon which we build shopping experiences. Um, and you're probably familiar with many of the shopping experiences we have, such as the Amazon homepage, where you can start your shopping journey. Uh, there's the search experience where you can enter some key terms and find a list of products you might be interested in. Um, you can go to the product detail page where you can drill down into additional details about a product you might be excited about. And then uh, finally, you know, the, the checkout experience where you can complete your shopping journey, purchase your, your products, and get them shipped to your home. And, and so Amazon Shopping Foundations is building a new managed internal offering for, uh, to improve how we build shopping experiences. So within this section, we'll talk a little bit about Amazon's path, a little bit of the history around moving from a monolithic architecture to a, you know, to a microservices architecture, um, and also like, why we, we think moving uh, shopping experiences to a microservices architecture is the right decision. Um, as well, we'll talk about some of the requirements we had as we were looking at how to host uh, the execution of these, these microservices. And so something that's important to understand is, is this the concept we have internally of a two-pizza team. Uh, it's how we organize our development teams. Uh, two pizzas should be roughly enough to feed your entire development team, which ends up being about eight to 10 developers. Uh, it encourages the teams to be autonomous, uh, so they should be able to make decisions on their own and try th new things out, as well as agility, so they can try new things out very rapidly, gather data, and decide if they, they made the right decision. Something else to understand is, in 2002, there was a mandate uh, that teams should communicate across network-separated APIs. Uh, Amazon didn't always have a distributed architecture, and so um, the original Amazon.com website was actually uh, deployed as a single binary. Uh, developers are clever and found ways to enable communication uh, across different parts of the application, uh, but this caused a lot of coupling and, and made it very hard to evolve the, the application over time. And so um, the mandate in 2002 donned the era of service-oriented architectures within Amazon. Um, we use APIs as a mean of communication across teams directly. Service-oriented architectures are generally focused on, on data-oriented uh, services, ones with very structured input and output. Uh, but shopping experiences are built on top of rendering services, which um, you know, the, the input may be structured, but the output is generally things like is generally HTML. Um, and so as part of building towards this microservices architecture, we're trying to improve uh, some of the framework support for, for adding some of the, um, the more structured input and output around rendering services. And so like I said, uh, shopping experiences are built you know, using rendering services. Uh, within Amazon, we refer to these as page applications. And a page application includes uh, both the, the business logic and the templates required to render a, a shopping experience. Um, page applications are owned by the team uh, who own the shopping experience and are generally optimized for that shopping experience. Um, and each of the team establishes its best practices through the structure of the page application. And so, um, you know, challenges that the Amazon homepage team might face uh, are very different than those in the, that the checkout team faces. And their page applications will represent that with how they serve requests and, st and structure their code. And so while shopping experiences are, are owned by a single team, the, the features that um, get contributed to that shopping experience are themselves also owned by a variety of teams across Amazon. 
And the way that most teams will contribute features to uh, the page applications is by um, committing that code to the same code base as, as the page application. Um, and this results uh, in, in teams building features that are very, uh, very much optimized for the, the shopping experience for the page application that they're being committed to. Um, and ultimately, this leads to feature changes being released in the same uh, CICD pipeline. And so in general, CICD pipelines should uh, improve the velocity of, of, uh, at which you can release changes. Um, but when all of these teams are committing the same code, what we actually find is, is the velocity can go down over time. Um, and so the pipeline release process, again, uh, intended to increase velocity, uh, becomes a bottleneck. Um, in turn, this increases the operational burden for the teams who own these page applications. The page applications become monoliths in their own right, um, and monoliths are very difficult to maintain over time. Um, they become more and more complex as you add more and more code, which, which makes a lot of sense. And so the, the idea that Amazon Shopping Foundations had was, let's, well, let's decompose the shopping experience. Let's, let's break apart these features into um, a microservices architecture. And so there's a number of approaches, or there's a number of benefits that we see with this approach. Um, you know, it provides feature teams and these page application teams independent release cycles. It eliminates the, the pipeline as a bottleneck to releasing new features and, and to updating existing features. Um, and decoupling feature releases allows the teams that own the features um, a much more rapid experimentation cycle. Uh, it also lowers the friction for creating new features. And so um, you know, there, may be t there are teams who um, might want to experiment with a radically new experience or a radically new feature. Um, but if they have to contribute that code to a, one of these page applications, they may be less likely to do it because the cost is much higher. And so in uh, this microservices architecture, we believe that the cost will be much, much lower for these types of um, experiments. Um, but one of the biggest benefits we see with microservices architectures is that um, we can isolate feature execution from, from each other. And so if feature A starts failing during execution, feature B won't be impacted. And ultimately, the entire experience that we serve to our customer should not be impacted either. We just won't be able to show that one feature. And so the way that teams contribute features in this architecture is just by building a new front-end microservice. Um, hosting of the microservices is, is uh, owned by the uh, managed services team. Um, so this allows the feature teams to focus on delivering business value for Amazon, but really more importantly, it allows them to focus on the functionality uh, that delights Amazon customers. Um, the managed services team takes on the responsibility of scaling and of uh, providing the availability promises that, that feature owners expect. Uh, shopping experiences teams manage which feature will actually end up in, in their shopping experience. Um, and so what, what, this, what happens here is um, rather than deciding what features are, are going to go into a specific experience being a very technical decision, we're able to turn that into a business decision so these teams can um, you know, have a conversation about, hey, do we think this is the right experience for our customers? Uh, so as we started this, this project, uh, we started this program, one of, the, one of the, the, the things we wanted to avoid was Big Bang migrations. Uh, Big Bang migrations can be very costly. I'm sure you're you know, aware of that. And then uh, they also greatly increase the risk of, of success of the project. And so uh, one of our core requirements was that uh, we wanted uh, teams to be able to incrementally adopt this, this architecture. And um, what we've done is enable teams to integrate these, these microservice-based features next to uh, legacy features within the same experience. Um, and we see as the number of features uh, being built in this architecture grows, um, the role of the monolithic page applications will get smaller and smaller over time. And we expect that um, 
the shopping experiences will com be completely composed of, of these microservices. And so uh, actually today we are serving the majority of the features on the Amazon homepage using um, this microservices architecture. And um, we are continuing to expand the footprint of features being served in this architecture uh, over time. Uh, so before we go on to the next section, I did want to talk a little bit about how we thought about the requirements um, require, uh, that the requirements as we were building out the hosted execution environment. Um, high availability is a core requirement for any service being built at Amazon. Outages happen, uh, but our services need to remain redundant uh, in spite of failures. Um, scalability, though, is just as important. So um, we want the ability to scale our system, our managed service, out over time. Um, as we grow the number of customers and the set of use cases that we can support also increases. Um, but reliability is just as important for us. Uh, we need the system to work as ex expected um, and to be predictable. No one likes to get paged at 2 a.m. And, and, and if we can reduce the amount of time that that happens, that's, that's great for us. Uh, so based on, on those requirements, uh, we, we made some key decisions. So we, we package our, our uh, microservices as Docker containers, as, as Docker images, and we run them inside of a Kubernetes cluster. And, and we're currently using Amazon EKS to, to execute all of these uh, microservices. But we didn't always use the EKS. And before it was available, we actually used, as Bob said, the uh, COPS command line tool to create our clusters. Um, and we, we launched our first experimental cluster in December of 2017. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this cluster was managed and continues to be managed by a two-pizza team, you know, eight to ten developers, uh, and none of the team had DevOps experience when we, when we started. Um, so given the team size and the scope of ownership of, of, of a Kubernetes cluster, there, there was a lot of risk to the success of our program, um, you know, uh, in owning this cluster. And early on, we did some very hacky things in order to try and stabilize our Kubernetes cluster. Right ahead of our launch, uh, we ended up with a very unstable cluster, which was not ideal. And so in this section, we'll talk a little bit more about how uh, moving from our COPS-based clusters to um, managed clusters through EKS really Im Im improved our, our ownership, our, our ability to serve our customers um, by being able to shift some of our ownership over to the, the EKS through their, through their managed service. Um, we'll talk about some of the problems that, that we were facing that when we made the switch just were eliminated for us, which was great, um, and how we see you know, using EKS as a, the ability to drive some more value to our customers. So uh, our cluster, again, became unhealthy right ahead of our, our you know, experimental launch. Um, uh, luckily for us, we had been in discussions already with the EKS team. Um, you know, when they launched their preview, we very quickly um, started looking at how we might migrate our, our build logic, and around that same time, our cluster became completely unusable. Um, luckily, the, the changes uh, required for us moving from COPS to you know, the, the programmatic APIs through their AWS uh, was very minor. There were some small component changes in our cluster that had to, um, you know, we had to move around, but, but ultimately it was, it was a very quick transition. Um, and throughout this section, we'll talk about a little bit more where you know, making this move um, solved those problems that we were facing. So uh, the first big one was we did not have a strategy with our COPS-based clusters around how to manage in-place updates to the cluster. Um, Christian will talk a little bit more about this later, but uh, you know, we did, uh, the way that we actually performed updates was to migrate our workloads from uh, the cluster that we were running in production uh, to a brand new cluster where the updates were applied. 
Um, that's fine, but it's a, it's a very heavyweight process. Um, we've improved that over time, but it's still not our first choice for how to uh, you know, apply updates to the cluster. And so when we were talking with the EKS team, they, they discussed the fact that, well, you know, we can manage the updates to the core components, components of the cluster, like the control plane, um, on your behalf. Um, and so after we made the switch, we were actually really surprised the first time uh, when we found out that a, a, a security patch was applied to the cluster um, and, and we, we had no knowledge of it. And in fact, um, there was no impact to our online traffic um, and it was just you know, it was something that we followed up with them to, to learn more about. Um, but it's great because uh, you know, this is also true for more uh, regular software updates will just be applied to our cluster and, and we don't have to worry too much about it. Um, it provided us with a lot of confidence both in Kubernetes but EKS as well. Um, you know, we, we can stay up to date with security patches and, and not have to be focused on that from our team. Um, and this really uh, reduced the cognitive load on our team. We had a lot of, uh, you know, other areas to worry about and this just became one that we didn't have to. Another area uh, that EKS, moving to EKS really helped us out with was um, etcd management. And as Bob talked about, um, it's the underlying data store for the Kubernetes control plane. Um, it's one of the most complicated components in a Kubernetes cluster, and it really requires um, deep knowledge to operate it efficiently. And due to issues with how etcd um, provides its consistency guarantees, it's, it's possible for it to get into an inconsistent state, um, and, and it causes problems with, with consistency. Uh, I'm not gonna get into too much into how um, you know, it provides its consistency guarantees, but basically there's a, a leader election policy where uh, uh, protocol where one of the nodes becomes the leader and, and manages the, the, um, the relationship with the client and that state is replicated out. Um, there are ed edge cases where um, you know, we, can, we can end up in this place where the, the cluster becomes an inconsistent, in an inconsistent state. And so um, due to our hacky upgrade process, and we were actually using an older version of etcd than, than would be used now, um, our, our alpha cluster, this experimental cluster, got into a really bad state. The symptoms seem to indicate that one of the nodes uh, gotten into this inconsistent state and, and it couldn't recover on its own. Um, in general, actually, that's okay, uh, but you're, you need to have uh, the process uh, in order to recover it into a, back into a healthy state. Um, our team's lack of depth in this area put us in a bad position because we just didn't have a plan for how to recover it. Um, and so moving to EKS has actually eliminated this area of ownership for us altogether. EKS team will manage the, the etcd cluster, monitor it, and make sure that it, it remains in this healthy state. Um, something to note, though, is the a newer version of etcd, the, the one that you would be using, uh, is not as prone to this type of error, um, and so it's, it's unlikely to occur again. Um, and one other area where moving to uh, EKS really helped us out was around um, scaling of our masters. And so uh, when we created our, our the, the default setup for a, a COPS-based cluster is to put um, your Kubernetes control plane and the um, etcd, node, uh, etcd uh, nodes on the same host. Uh, and so this, this couples the scaling of the control plane to your, your data store. Um, and so in our cluster, we have a very chatty component and it turned out it was actually causing the control plane to brown out uh, while we were serving online traffic, which is just not an ideal scenario. We, we couldn't make as, uh, changes to the cluster. Um, and so our hypothesis is actually that this contributed to etcd becoming unhealthy because it ran on the same host and it was driving a very high CPU utilization and we, we think that they were unable to talk to each other, the, the etcd nodes. 
Um, we didn't, we didn't uh, actually follow up on this because we actually moved uh, directly to EKS and it solved this problem for us altogether. Scaling of the Kubernetes control plane was separated from scaling of the etcd nodes uh, and we just didn't see these brownouts anymore. We still were running, we still run this very chatty component um, and the, the, the master nodes, the control plane, just scales up and down automatically for us. Um, we've actually improved some of our own management of, of the cluster, and I'm sure that's helped. Um, the point here is that we actually don't think about this problem anymore, and we'd prefer not to, and it's great that the EKS team uh, can take care of this for us. And so um, EKS has really helped free our team up from having to gain deep knowledge in areas that, that don't uh, directly contribute to the success of our customers, that doesn't bring additional value to the customers that we serve. And while they're all, all of them are immensely uh, valuable, it, it's worthwhile for us to delegate that ownership to the, to the EKS team. Um, it allows uh, us to focus on delivering the, this microservices architecture to our customers, to focus on solving the, the problems that they want us to solve and uh, delegate the rest to the EKS folks. Um, and so through this next section, uh, we're going to dive deeper into how we've actually, or Christian will dive deeper into how we've actually utilized EKS um, and containerized applications uh, to address the needs of our customers. Thank you, Kevin. Hi, everyone. My name is Christian. I'm a senior software engineer at Amazon. Um, so Kevin talked about um, how we plan to break up apart the um, shopping experience and the features running in it into multiple microservices. So in the next slides, I will walk you through how we build a private managed offering to enable our customers to do so. And we'll finish up uh, by showing um, um, how we did a live migration of a cluster in production. So we did this based on three principles. Uh, the first one is, um, as Kevin already mentioned, uh, we wanted each feature to be uh, and independent containerized applications that we will deploy as a microservices inside the cluster. Um, and we wanted to expose uh, these services as endpoints to paycheck applications to consume. This enables decoupling uh, between the features as well as the page applications. We also wanted to provide um, gradual deployments for our customers uh, to minimize, minimize the impact in case they deploy buggy versions of their code. So what we wanted to do is um, every time they deployed a new version, we wanted to slowly shift traffic from the stable version to the newer one, uh, reducing the impact on customers, um, if any. So we can either roll back the deployment to the stable version or continue deploying until we uh, replace to the new version. And the third one is that we wanted to provide highly available elasticity for our customers so they can focus on developing features and not maintaining infrastructure. Um, this particular constraint uh, have two major uh, requirements. Uh, the one, um, our solution had to be able to support Amazon retail traffic, which is by nature uh, high in volume and has unexpected spikes of traffic on any given day. And we also needed to support um, special days with special kind of traffic like uh, Prime Day or recently Cyber Monday, for example. Uh, the second requirement was, requirement was that the SLAs of these services had to be super, super fast. All of these microservices are directly rendering content to the page, so any added latency that the way these services may add could impact directly um, Amazon customers uh, viewing any shopping experience. 
so we came up with this high-level architecture that I will be talking about during the session. Um, what our customers mainly see is their pipeline and nothing else. Everything is abstracted for them. And that pipeline is directly integrated with our control plane. Um, our control plane, what it does is basically manage two types of resources. <clears throat> One, of course, the microservices running inside the cluster, which we configure to auto-scale and publish metrics to CloudWatch, um, et cetera. And the second resource we manage is a Route 53 entry, uh, Route 53 domain, in which we expose the uh, services that are running in the cluster that eventually uh, resolve to those services through a private link that we expose to page applications. So the first thing we do is uh, deploy these microservices, and we deploy them with what is called a cluster IP. Um, the service on the cluster IP are just constructs from Kubernetes. They don't actually allocate any computing or networking resources until actually pods are allocated to that service. So when this happens, we use a uh, plugin that is called Amazon VPC CNI uh, K8 plugin that is basically responsible for assigning a unique IP to each of the pods running in the cluster, so making each pod um, addressable within that uh, network. Second, what we do is we deploy an ingress controller, which is um, another name for a software load balancer, basically. Um, this component is responsible for routing the traffic within the cluster to any of the services that we are hosting. Um, the difference between the ingress controller and the services is that the ingress controller we deploy it as a node port. So instead of assigning a unique IP to each of these uh, um, controllers, what we do is deploy that component on every node, um, listening on a specific uh, port in that node. So for example, in this case, the ingress controller will be listening on every work node, uh, worker node on port 5000. Now to expose our software load balancer to external traffic, what we use is a network load balancer. Uh, we chose an NLB uh, mainly because uh, the high volume traffic we need to serve and some requirements we have uh, had around TLS. But there is a blog out there on AWS that compares um, ALB and NLB and uh, you compare it to your use case. So finally what we do is expose the uh, software load balancer uh, through a private link to uh, customers running on other VPCs uh, external than ours. And when we do that, what we do is that for each uh, service that we host, we create an entry, an entry in Route 53 that basically resolves to that same VPC endpoint that goes through the private link. So all of the services will be pointing to that same uh, IP address that is resolvable only on the page application's VPC. Then when requests come in into our cluster, it is routed to any of the software load balancers. And what we do is we use um, host header uh, routes to route the traffic to a corresponding service. So for example, if we see uh, a request with full feature in uh, the host header, then we will route it to uh, full service. Similarly, what we use for gradual deployments, our second biggest requirement is uh, we use weighted routes inside the, the server, inside the uh, cluster, to ship the traffic in case of new deployments. So whenever a new deployment for a service comes around, we deploy the, the new pod, 
and we shift the traffic between the two versions. Um, we don't do canary releases, which is basically you uh, uh, shift traffic to a certain threshold and then go to 100%. What we actually do is incrementally shift traffic over time until we reach 100% to reduce risk. And as we deploy, what we do is measure metrics that are coming outside of the applications. Um, the way we collect metrics is that we have another container running in the pod of the service. Remember that a pod is just a representation of your logical host, but may uh, have one or more containers. So uh, this specific container is responsible of collecting metrics about your requests and responses, as well as other metrics that the application may choose to uh, publish. And what we use is uh, Prometheus to collect these metrics out of, out of the services into a time series database. So basically, we're aggregating two spots. The first one is at the pod level, the second one on Prometheus, and then a third time on a custom solution that we built for this cluster to aggregate a second time, a third time, and publish those metrics to CloudWatch. Uh, with this, we um, reduce the number of entries or, or metrics we need to publish to CloudWatch without losing uh, the data that we need to monitor. And finally, for highly available elasticity, uh, we use two components. The first one is HPA, or Horizontal Pod Autoscaler, which is a control loop that runs um, inside Kubernetes by default every 15 seconds, but you can adjust it um, as you see fit. And what this component does is um, it monitors the mean of a given resource at the pod level uh, and compare it to the target that you want to set to monitor. For example, if you set the target to HPA to be 50% uh, usage of CPU, what this component will do is take the mean utilization of CPU among your services, and if the mean utilization is too high, then it will create more pods to uh, lower that value to the desired threshold. And same thing the other way around, if it is too low, it'll decrease the number of pods. <clears throat> and the second component is the cluster autoscaler, uh, which is responsible for adding more node in your autoscaling group when Kubernetes needs more space to create more pods. Uh, the, the other way that this component works as well is to optimize your uh, usage. So if uh, there's an opportunity to redistribute the pods and assign them to existing nodes to free up space, it'll also do that. So with this architecture in mind, uh, what we set up is took, we decided to take baby steps to um, prove our architecture. So we address first the problems of running the services, exposing them in endpoints, uh, and be able to actually gradually deploy to prove first our architecture. Um, and we decided to do later the uh, high level, highly available elasticity. So we went to production in, um, um, in a closed uh, beta um, project with our partners. And what we have observed from uh, almost days one is that we were able to meet the requirements for uh, our SLAs. So uh, services were running within SLA uh, and the latency added by the network diagram that I just showed you was uh, very uh, low. So we measured that uh, the request response time was four to five milliseconds at P90, which, was, uh, which could basically be ignored compared to the benefits that we were getting out of this architecture. 
and it's, it was not impacting uh, actual customers uh, viewing pages on, on, on Amazon homepage at the time. But what we did observe was every time we, make, uh, we made any change on the scaling of pods or nodes in the cluster or uh, any configuration change that would cause pods to be created or deleted, we will see a drop on availability on these services. Um, so we dive deep on this problem, and what we found was that the cold start behavior of our applications and the runtime we provided for our customers was really, really slow. Um, so every time we created a new pod, it'll take one to two seconds for the application to be warm enough to serve traffic at the SLAs that we needed to. Uh, after those two seconds, uh, the, the, the pod will be on a normal state and we'll be able to serve as the measures that we see at P90. So we decided to actually invest in our runtime and get it to a point in, the, in which it could almost start instantly. Um, after we deploy that, we measure again, and we saw that uh, all of the errors were gone. So we were pretty happy with it, and that let us, let us focus on how we could configure uh, elasticity, and how can we use this information to do so. Um, so we basically came to the conclusion that, that there is a relation between the speed at, at which we wanted um, our, our services to scale and the speed of our SLAs uh, directly related to the threshold we will set to the HPA. Um, so we measure this and put um, our cluster under load. And what we come out with is that 60% was kind of like the sweet spot for our types of workloads that could meet our requirement of low latency services. Anything higher than that would uh, make our pods uh, too hot and see, again, the same errors. And anything too low, lower than that would be basically just uh, a waste of resources. So we're happy. Uh, we think we made it. And we just started experimenting with this in production and started observing um, how this behaves. And basically, is it working or not? is it not working? And what I'm showing you in this graph is our first scaling event on January this year in production which was an um, increase in traffic in one of our customers that increased about 8x uh, over a period of um, seven to eight hours. At this time, basically what you can see is that the utilization within the cluster of the services that we were hosting increases basically linearly to that same graph. And what we saw in our HPA is that it needed to increase the utilization, I'm sorry, the requested CPU three times to cover this traffic. But the actual spectacular part for us um, on this is that throughout that event, the availability of all of the services that steady at 100%, um, which we're absolutely very happy with. Similarly, for, cloud, um, for the autoscaler of nodes, uh, we see the same behavior. Um, this dashboard, what I'm showing you, is not actual production data, but is one of the testings that we did uh, in preparation for Prime Day this year. As you can see, the request count also increases, I think in this time is uh, 2x over a period of uh, a couple of hours, and we see exactly the same behavior. Uh, node count goes up until the traffic goes down again, and then we uh, release the nodes again. And then we updated the cluster. Uh, as Kevin mentioned before, we started uh, with uh, COPS and without EKS, and this is a story about that uh, 
era. <laughs> we, didn't, uh, we haven't seen this problem after we onboarded to EKS. Um, at the time, the problem uh, caused all of our uh, routes to be affected, um, having a huge, bad, huge impact on the availability of our customers and the services we're hosting. So that was an eye-opener for us. Uh, at the time, we have all, had all the levers because we were under experimentation. But that drove a um, critical decision for us is that we will consider all of our infrastructure um, ephemeral and the clusters to be immutable. So by this we mean uh, once we uh, deploy a, a cl cluster into production and we host services on that, we don't touch it uh, to avoid introducing errors that, like the one I just mentioned. And this triggered two lines of work in our team. One is we were absolutely focused on automation our infrastructure. And today we're able to spin up a cluster from scratch uh, by executing a script and it'll be ready, ready in 15 to 18 minutes, um, uh, I'm sorry, 18 to 20 minutes, uh, ready to serve traffic. And the second uh, um, important thing is that since our clusters are immutable, we needed a deployment process to update our own changes. And we decided that we wanted the same experiences, experience that we were providing to our customer. So we wanted to have gradual rollouts uh, of our cluster changes. And the way we do it is actually pretty much the same way. Um, every time we need to propagate changes to our infrastructure, we spin up a new cluster with a new configuration and use the same process to migrate the workloads from one cluster to the other. And the only difference here is that instead of using weighted rules on the ingress controller, we use weighted rules on Route 53. So Route 53 in this case is responsible for shifting the traffic of the same service but across two clusters, and then we can compare the performance of those services on different configurations. We do this with every workload, and once we're ready, uh, we let it sit for a while, comparing both metrics, and once we're uh, satisfied with it, we basically just kill uh, the older cluster. Though this is a great feature for cluster rollouts, uh, it enables some other uh, more advanced patterns in our architecture that we're trying out this year is that we can go and pursue a cell-based architecture for um, our offering. So if you're not familiar with what cell-based architecture is, it's just basically you don't put all your eggs on the same bucket, and you split them up on buckets of the same size. When you do this in computing, basically you can enable higher testability as you only need to test one cell to prove your code. You can have higher scalability as, um, scalability as if uh, your system grows and your customer grows, you can grow just by adding more cells into your, infra into your architecture. And more importantly as well, it reduces your blast radius as if, you, uh, if one of the cells becomes unavailable, uh, you just impact a, a subset of your customers or maybe none of them depending on your design. So we're exploring uh, some architectures like this in which you define a threshold for your cell and you scale out internally in the cell until you hit the limit and then add additional customers to the cells you start spinning up as you scale out. When you lose one, then you pack only a subset of your customers. Another option could be uh, you make sure to deploy all of your workloads in two or more cells. Then if one cell is impacted, 
then uh, you, your customers are not impacted, but you have to make sure that the other cells are available to uh, take this overload until you recover. So what I will show you now is an actual uh, live migration that we did in preparation for Cyber Monday. Uh, at the top, you see these are our actual production dashboards. So at the top, you see um, the dashboard of the live cluster we have in Europe. And at the bottom, the new cluster we have spin up to uh, migrate and, and deploy the new configuration. On the left side of the dashboards, you see the availability of our uh, load balancer, the availability of our ingress and the nodes at the middle, um, the values of these metrics. And on the right side, uh, the performance of the services that are, we are hosting. So at the bottom in blue, you will see the success rate. And on the top in orange, you see the average errors that we see on, on running in production. Um, but the availability, availability is always stays high is over, um, above the SLA. You will see the dashboards updating because we compressed this in, in a couple of seconds, but this was a process that lasted um, 35 minutes or so to just deploy, migrate the workloads, and then we let it sit for around 20 minutes. So if you can see, immediately the, the request count increases on the new uh, cluster, and slowly the request count and the request, success, uh, success request on the uh, live cluster starts going down and down and down as the new one goes up and up. In both cases, the availability of our software loan balancer is steady, and, as well as the availability of our customers. So once that, all, the, uh, um, um, all the traffic is shifted, we let it sit for a while, and once we're finished with it, then we just kill the cluster, and we're done with it. This was live with production traffic. None of our customers were aware of this, and we could do everything behind the scenes. So key takeaways from this session, um, ownership is hard uh, from experience, is very, very hard, and managed services make it easier. Uh, we started with this project uh, even before EKS was available. So we have a, a bunch of legacy uh, components as well in our system, and we're working towards moving to other AWS services like Container Insights, App Mesh, et cetera. Uh, if you're using EKS uh, with uh, your own nodes, make sure you manage you monitor your use and reserve resources so you can optimize your configuration over time. And if you're planning to use auto-scaling the way uh, similar to how we're using it, um, it is, we think it's critical for you to understand what is the SLA you want to achieve for your services, and from that you can work backwards to your configuration. So if your SLA hasn't been to be as fast as ours, you can allow your services to run hotter because you don't need that speed when you uh, do auto-scaling. If you observe any events on Kubernetes of, of, of spikes of traffic, uh, don't be alarmed. Uh, we've usually observed Kubernetes recover its, itself with no manual intervention. And we started with very sensitive alarms that basically would just lead over time because there were just noise for us. Last, uh, we recommend to design for a thermal infrastructure. Uh, you don't have to necessarily have a cell-based architecture if you don't want to, but automating your infrastructure with will at least allow you to have a fast recovery plan in case of um, um, disasters. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, please remember to fill the survey. Uh, we will not be taking questions on stage, but if you have questions, uh, uh, please join us. We'll be happy to answer them. Uh, thank you.